But I had the chance recently to chat with Emily Kramer over at Market One, and I really liked how she put it. She said, as there's more pressure and as budgets change, companies need to look at things that maybe made sense before as a one-to-one activity. You know, have your salesperson just call every single one of these people, as an example. And how do you start to look at one-to-many activities? And where can you be very smart about where you're spending that time and energy at scale versus in a one-to-one approach? Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Market Mentors Podcast. I'm Matt Dodgson, co-founder of Market Recruitment, and we connect B2B tech and SaaS businesses with marketers to help them grow. This week, we're joined by Kevin Tate. Kevin is Chief Marketing Officer at Clearbit. And given his background that covers sales, marketing, and early stage investing, combined with an eye on how technology can be utilized in B2B, it made for an interesting chat. With the economic realities of today, growth at all costs has shifted to growing efficiently. And we dig into how you can do this through ABM, but in a way that is effective, but without the high cost and big resources typically needed. I hope you enjoy. So welcome to the Market Mentors Podcast, Kevin. Thank you very much, Matt. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. So before we get stuck into this one, I'd love to know what your relationship is with B2B marketing. Well, I'd say at this point, we have a long and storied relationship. So I actually, it's funny, my first internet job was back in 1996, and it was in marketing, and I was launching a product for a company back then called iPro, Internet Profiles Corporation, which interestingly enough was trying to figure out how do you gather visitor information to personalize experiences at scale. Yeah. And back in 96, we thought, oh, we'll have all this solved, you know, in a year, this will be easy. And of course, it's something that we're still trying to figure out how to do on the internet today and talking about with respect to ABM. So yeah, it's been a long road with B2B marketing, both as someone who's worked in it and of course also tried to you know help build tools that make it work better. Awesome. Sounds good. So we're here to talk about how you can do ABM or highly personalized marketing at scale without a really big budget or without a big team. But why is thinking like this almost in a nimble way important for businesses right now then? Well, if you've seen the headlines, there's some exciting stuff going on out there. You know, it is an interesting time, right? We had the pleasure recently of speaking at the Saster Annual Conference, which was a ton of fun and fun to see people back out in person after a bit. But part of what we were talking about was how things have shifted and how do you know what's really changed versus maybe what the tea leaves you're still trying to read about that change. And I think the things we know are that, you know, budgets are getting tighter and the buying process has changed a bit and things that were perhaps a nice to have are being deprioritized behind those that are a must have right now. Mm. But I had the chance recently to chat with Emily Kramer over at Market One, and I really liked how she put it. She said, as there's more pressure and as budgets change, companies need to look at things that maybe made sense before as a one-to-one activity. You know, have your salesperson just call every single one of these people, as an example. And how do you start to look at one-to-many activities? And where can you be very smart about where you're spending that time and energy at scale versus in a one-to-one approach? And I think that's one of the things top of mind for us and I think for the companies that we work with as they figure out how do they navigate some changing market conditions. And to your point, maintain flexibility, 
maintain mm -hmm. those options, right? So you're not putting all your eggs in one basket, especially if it's not a super efficient basket. Yeah, it's certainly going to be some interesting times, I think, for B2B marketers, isn't it? And just for context, then, if we're going to be talking about a sort of a nimble approach, if you like, but if we're talking about larger scale ABM programs, there's sort of traditional big programs, then what does something like that look like, then just to give us a little bit of context? Well, of course, you know, it depends on the company. And I think important to note that ABM is our account-based marketing. It's one motion, you know, it's one sort of arrow in the quiver or play in the book. And most of the companies we see are trying to make sure they have a number of, you know, I'm using inbound, I'm using perhaps a PLG or a trial motion. But on the ABM side, to your question, it gets very expensive, right? Mm -hmm. We hear a lot about companies who are spending six figures and six months to get things implemented and running. I think that's conservative. If you're a bigger company, this is probably a seven-figure initiative. And I think perhaps even more to your point around flexibility, it's one that can become kind of all-encompassing in that you're so focused on this one play where you're trying to figure out, okay, how do I get my salespeople to get them on the phone, you know? And again, it's not that it's not valuable, but the flexibility and adaptability, I think, are even more prized when you've got some economic challenges and you're trying new things. Cool. So let's dig into this then. And I know you and the team at Clearbit have been thinking about this then. So what's the first step somebody should be thinking about if we're thinking about doing ABM at scale with personalization, but a bit more nimbly then? As with a lot of these things, I think the first step is often a deep understanding of your customer. And I break that into two parts. It's really understanding your ICP or your ideal customer profile. So who are the companies and how can you tell when a company is one that you're most likely to be able to create value for and capture value from, right? It's a two-way street. There's got to be a fit. So the ICP is kind of the fit piece on the company side. Mm. And knowing that and making sure you have whatever your data foundation is or your intelligence solution is, really getting a full picture of your market and then being able to understand what are the companies in there that I want to apply this motion to. However I fashion the motion, where is it I'm trying to get with it, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the ICP mm -hmm. part. And then the other piece is the buyer profiles, right? You know, this motion and how you apply it's going to be pretty different if you're selling to directors of IT versus heads of marketing versus professional services teams. And so who are those buyers? I really like the jobs to be done idea when you're figuring out how you approach those buyers, right? What mm -hmm. are they trying to accomplish and how do you understand if and how your solution can help them accomplish those things? So I think about ICP and jobs to be done as two really kind of central pillars from which to start when you're mm. trying to put a motion like this together. And the more you know about those, the more you're going to be able to focus and refine your approach. And that can be as simple as going back into your CRM and looking at historical data. It can be as straightforward as that. And most marketeers will kind of know what an ICP is, but they frequently need to go back into it to make sure that the ICP is correct for these particular times, if these times are changing, I guess. so. That's a great point. A couple of areas in particular that I think we, and I would encourage others to look at your ICP and your buyer jobs to be done, on the ICP side, if you have your target market, say, in the before times, and now we've got a little bit different market, mm. understanding the customer acquisition costs within different parts of that ICP and expect them to change. You know, mm. expect you're going to see some differences in what it costs to start and contract with a company based on different market segments and how they've been affected. Mm. And then I think almost more nuanced is the effect that tighter budgets and that a different economic climate 
can have on that jobs to be done piece of mm -hmm. your buyer. And in particular, a lot of us, I think, are in a position where you're selling a solution that is overcoming some terrible sounding manual process, right? You know, oh, well, you know, if they didn't have our solution, mm -hmm. someone would have to spend hours a week manually creating this report or going through this workflow. And that might sound ridiculous when things are going well and everybody's growing mm -hmm. as fast as they can. But if budgets get tight, then yeah, well, you know, maybe someone needs to spend a few hours a week. Mm -hmm. I mean, it really changes mm -hmm. what the alternatives are from a jobs to be done perspective and especially manual or more painstaking alternatives become real competitors to your solution in a way that maybe mm -hmm. they weren't before. And so really taking a fresh look to your point at the ICP and the jobs to be done is smart moves in these times. Makes sense. Makes sense. So we have our ICP sorted then, but at any one time, there's only going to be a small proportion of those customers in market. So how do we sort of suggest you optimize for intent? So I think intent is a really interesting area and one that is I think maybe changing the most right now, not just because of some of the economic change, because of the way the technology and the policies around it are changing. Mm -hmm. So if you look at traditional third-party intent signals, right? So to give an example, I have a friend, he runs a company that does compliance software for drug trials, very specific, mm -hmm. right? And the promise, the potential of third-party intent would be that he would be able to know when a specific person, a specific company read a very specific article somewhere about a particular part of, you know, <laughs> drug trial compliance management mm. and he could, oh, great. And then reach out and say, oh, I'm so glad you're interested. Mm. It's a great promise. I think in reality, as those of us who've used it know, you get some of the signals some of the times and a lot of times it's more oblique than that. You know, mm. well, somebody at a company was researching something in the medical category and that may or may not mm. be relevant to you. And so... That's not to say that third-party intent, and we partner with some great companies who offer third-party intent. It's not to say that it isn't valuable, but it often doesn't provide some of the specificity and timing mm. that you really want to make sure you're reaching not just the right company and the right person, but you're reaching them at the right time, to your point, when they're in market, when it matters to them. Mm. And I think what we're seeing is that companies are leaning more and gleaning more from the strongest signal of intent, of first party intent, which is their website, mm. right? So, you know, if you think about what it's like to be the owner of a website these days, if you're lucky, 2% of the people who come to your website actually fill out a lead form or raise their hand in some way or offer an email address and say, okay, you know, pick me, talk to me. The other 98% mm. are unknown. You don't know who they were. You don't know what they did. And so you have no way to act on that. And that just really doesn't need to be the case anymore. So I think mm -hmm. a lot of what we've seen in the last couple of years is the real maturation of tools that let you understand that 98%, see which of those fit your ICP based on what companies are actually coming to visit, mm -hmm. and then using those intent signals, perhaps in coordination with third-party signals, to really know you've got someone who's not just in market, but kind of literally just outside your door and waiting for you to open it and invite them in. So we think a lot about this combination of what's happening on your website or first party intent, and then how you can combine that with some of the more traditional third party intent signals. And there's a lot of innovation in that area. I think it's a really good point. And actually we're seeing here, I don't know if you're seeing the same in America, but we're seeing more of the B2B companies building more like media machines within their organizations. They're acting a little bit more like a B2C organization in terms of the content they're producing, the podcast, the video channels, all this kind of stuff. 
to build that brand, to suck those potential customers into them, to be able to own that data, you know, the power of the first party data. So I don't know if that's the sort of same in the US, but I guess companies like HubSpot and Drift are kind of at the forefront of that type of model, really. But And I think it's a very, very important point. I think part of what's driving that as well as the focus on first on your website intent versus the third party pieces. And, you know, being a little glib about it, but you could go back even five years and just assume, well, thanks to the way cookies work and thanks to the mm -hmm. information that's available through my network partners, I can get whoever I need to wherever they are. Mm -hmm. And that's not the case, right? And that's increasingly not going to be the case as the cookie policies and the privacy laws continue to mature, mm. right? In ways that are great for internet consumers. And as businesses, we have to plan for that. And so to your point, we need to invite them onto our content, our sites, our turf, as it were, mm. and then let them engage on their terms and not rely on whatever networks are gonna help us find them out there because mm. that's not how privacy is working. So I think it has raised the bar for companies to really think about how do I make sure I understand, how do I earn that attention, mm. and then how to make sure I can understand and act on that attention when I've got it. Yeah, good stuff, good stuff. And invariably then in B2B, we're talking about buyers. They're always different across different companies. Some companies will have buying committees, especially within those sort of enterprise larger businesses. So what can people do to make sure they're targeting the right people within those organizations then? Yeah, this is a big and deep one. I think... First, I think it really, really depends, right? There are companies with strong enterprise sales motion, selling big ticket mm -hmm. items, you know, six, seven figure deals. They've got buying committees. They need org charts. They need to understand the dynamics of multiple, not just departments, but also locations. And there are some great and emerging tools for really understanding that maybe less so as a part of the marketing piece and more where marketing goes into the buying cycle, right? And as a deal moves into pipeline, you've got the context you need to then sell to that buyer committee. I will say, you know, our focus has been more on key buyers and roles and how do you tie those people to that expressed intent. So for example, there's something that we enable for companies called intent-based outreach. And so based on, again, those signals for Ooh, they're coming to your website. They're looking at this content. How can I get the title and role and seniority of my key buyers at those companies? So if I want to do an advertising campaign or if I want to invite those people to come to my event or start a conversation, I'm inviting the right people at the right time mm. based on what that signal is. And that particular piece of that puzzle is one we think is back to our theme, can really be done at scale mm. if you're applying the technology to understand what's happening on your site and then know how to translate it to your key buyers. Mm. Good stuff. So we've got the ICP sorted. We're thinking about who the people are within those types of businesses. We're understanding intent. I guess the next bit then is kind of moving on to messaging now. And without trying to set us up for a fail too much, we could probably do 10 podcasts on content and stuff like that. So we're not going to crack it in this question. But if we're talking about scale and we're still talking about personalization, then what do you think people could be doing to make sure that message is still relevant then? Yeah, this is a tricky one too, right? Because we all know what it looks like when it goes wrong. Yeah. You know, it's the dear blank, you know, <laughs> you know, the all caps industry. <laughs> if we look back at the a recipe you've just described, I mean, really it's, you've got the right company, you've got the right person, you know, it's the right time based on mm -hmm. those intent signals. So how do you get there with the right message? And I think the best place to look is 
there are clues in each of those three areas, the company, the person, and the timing that you can use, not just to craft your message, but even in your message. So talk about what those are. So on the company side, assuming you're working with some kind of company intelligence or, or company data provider, you should have 100 plus data points about that company that you know has visited your website. And some of those are kind of the usuals that you could use for relevance or personalization, like what industry are they in? What size or stage company are they in? What's their location? But actually some of the more interesting ones we've found are things like what technologies they're using. So when we reveal what companies are visiting a customer's website, part of what we share is these are the technologies we can tell they're using. And often it's 50 or 100 technologies. And so if you're a solution that has something particularly interesting to say to a company that say uses Stripe to process their payments and uses HubSpot for their marketing, you can tell that. Mm. And you can put that right in your message and say, hey, as a company that's using Stripe and HubSpot, you should be looking at this particular best practice or solution, right? That's a huge advantage. So making sure you understand everything you can about the company so you can put that message in context. Then of course, there's the person part, right? So what's their title? What's their role? What's their department? Those can be very useful ways to target the message. But the last one, I think in some ways this gets even more to the timeliness of it, is what can you tell about those first party intent signals, right? So they came to your website, you know what they did. So if you're using a solution that shows you this company came to your website and saw each of these pages this many times over this time period, you can tell which blog article they read. You can tell what solution pages they were on. And so following up with content or a conversation that's relevant to that, perhaps combined with something you can tell about the technology they're using and the role they're in, now you've really got something, right? It's funny, you can kind of put these side by side, the sort of generic dear software company message and something that's really specific to them, their role and what they appear to be interested in, super different. Yeah, and I guess you're thinking about people in particular buckets then, but obviously not too many buckets because then it's very, very hard to sort of do it at scale. But at the same time, if we're doing something at scale, we do have to try and put people in certain buckets just to make it a little bit easier to be able to do it at scale. Yeah, it's a great point. And I think to make it really explicit and sort of back to our one-to-one -one versus one-to-many, mm. I think there's certainly a time where I'll go completely the other way. So a completely different approach to this is, okay, salesperson, let's make a list of all the companies with a list building tool. Now let's get a bunch of contacts for them. Okay, now let's start emailing them, right? And let's just email them all and see what happens, right? It's like we're back in the 1980s. Right. Well, and, you know, I don't think a lot of people are doing just that today, but I think a lot are still doing a version of that where then it's on the salesperson or the BDR to research each one. Okay, I guess I'm going to go to the website and I'm going to go to Crunchbase. I'm going to go to LinkedIn and see what I can say. And there's a role for that. But it's way more efficient and much more of a many to one mm. kind of motion to say, hey, here's who they are, why they're a fit, what technology they've got, what they read on your site. Here's everything. And maybe it's ready to start right away or maybe you want to do a little bit more research, but far more efficient to mm. tee up an SDR or a sales team like that. And that same relevance can also be used to power, say, targeted advertising campaigns, mm. right? Or to power content campaigns. And so that's where you start to see these things working in concert to help start a conversation at the right time with the right company.
Yeah, because you could be pulling these leads off and actually putting some ads in front of them quite easily these days. Yeah. It's pretty straightforward. So, okay, good stuff. This makes total sense to me. So what about tools then? What sort of tools would you suggest somebody needs to do something like this? Well, kind of back to the beginning, I think it matters a lot if you have some kind of market intelligence or company intelligence solution. It's very hard to do that first step around narrowly defining your ICP and your focus if you don't have a lot of market and company attributes to work with. And to your point, if you don't have a CRM that allows you to go back and look at where you've been successful, where the speed to lead occurs, you know, all the things. So that's a foundational piece. As you start to lean more into how can you leverage that 98% of your website that you know isn't filling out a form and how do you start to build these personalization motions at scale, there's actually a lot of good starter tools out there. We offer one called the Clearbit Weekly Visitor Report. It's a free tool and it lets you see, okay, here's the companies coming to my website and here's what they're doing. And if nothing else, that's a really great place to start. And you can start asking yourself, all right, what might I do with that timely information? How can I start to create those? And then once you've kind of know what you want to do, all manner of tools to help act on that, right? You know, we've got things that help with website personalization, things that help with the operationalization and automation of the advertising and the intent-based outreach. So there's no shortage of tools once you've got your strategy and your motion in mind. Yeah. And I think you absolutely bang on there. Strategy first, tool second. Good stuff. So switching tack. If you were hiring an ABM-focused marketer, perhaps somebody to implement something like we just talked about today, which has been great, what sort of skills and attributes would you look for, Kevin? We are in the midst of a shift, right? We're shifting what the landscape and the backdrop feels like and how people are applying these systems. And I think in order to be in tune with that, having someone with at least a bit of a marketing operations and marketing systems background is helpful. If not in, say, my org, then in our revenue operations org, they're going to be working closely around exactly these types of issues. I also think it would be true for us, but I think almost anyone, you know, some experience with our industry, you know, knowing not just the buyers and the target companies, but also the partners, the players, the tech, the competitors. I think that matters even more mm. as we all get more specialized and more focused on our ICP there. And then finally, I think... Particularly for this type of role, you know, an ABM-focused marketer or someone who's putting together these go-to-market motions, it really helps if they've spent at least a little time in a sales seat. You know, maybe they were a BDR or an SDR earlier in their career, or, or maybe they had a time when they were working with the sales team on a new go-to-market motion. There's so much empathy to be gained between mm -hmm. marketing and sales at this critical part of the business. If you sort of know what it's like to have walked in each other's shoes a bit. So that's something I also look for. Yeah, especially given they're going to be your key stakeholder as well in these types of roles. You can talk the language, you can give them the confidence that you know what they're experiencing and they're having to do. Yeah. Good stuff. Well, look, Kevin, this has been a fantastic chat. I think it's very timely with everything that's going on, as we touched on at the start. And it's really interesting to see how you can blend you know, really good techniques with good tools and a good strategy to achieve something which a lot of marketeers are wanting to do. It's personalization, but at scale to you know, really produce good results. So yeah, I really appreciate you sharing your knowledge with us. Well, thank you. Thanks very much for having me, sir. No, absolute pleasure. So that's it for another episode of the Market Mentors podcast. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, then please leave a review as that helps the channel going forward. Until next time.